chewing on it a bit. So thank you so much, Dean. I don't know exactly when I'll be back. That's all, I'll sign off now and let the bishop take over. Bishop Scarlett, we cannot hear you. There we go. <laughs> I was saying that um, I mentioned last time that Second Peter chapter two has a lot in common with the Epistle of Jude that we. Um, Look at a few weeks ago, and um, so it bears comparison. Although we won't spend a lot of time doing that because uh, it gets into questions well, you know, where it all come from, or who borrowed from whom, and this is the point of the actual text, which is what we're trying to focus on what is the, what does the thing mean? Um, I don't think it should be surprising or that, that maybe two different New Testament era writers were, were um, uh, borrowing from sort of the same themes that were probably common in the teaching and preaching at the time. So um, yeah, I think we, 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 we um, left off last time in... Um, I tell you exactly where we were. Yeah, we, I think we're... <laughs> Two sixteen, I think. No, nine. Two nine? Uh, or one nine, you say. Is it one nine? Yeah. No. <laughs> did, did I miss a week? Maybe I missed a week. Um, you were here. I was here. Well, did, I, did we only really get eight verses? Yeah. Do you remember? I wasn't here. I have it marked. But if you want to go to 16, that'd be okay. <laughs> I have that marked as well. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll then begin at 9. So, anyway, the Lord be with you. Amen. Let us pray. Blessed Lord has caused all holy scriptures written for our learning. Grant we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them that by patience and comfort of thy holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life which has given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 All right. Well, I'm not sure why my my mind is something else. um, So the section that we're in um, is, is... it, it, it the, the, where we left, where we um, began, it, it talks about 
um, in verse 5, giving diligence to add uh, to your faith virtue, to virtue, knowledge, to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, and it kind of goes up the ladder of an acquisition of virtue. And um, his point here is that um, he said, we've been, maker, been partakers of these promises and been, been made partakers of the divine nature. And as we embrace that life, and I would say embrace that life of prayer and connection to God through the Spirit, these things should grow in us. And as we see them growing in us, then we have assurance that, yeah, this is a real thing. And um, apart from that fruit, so he goes on to say in verse 9, we start today, for he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. And so the idea that um, salvation consists only in a static possession of some gift of eternal life apart from the actual work of God in us that turns us into new people is, is, is false in New Testament terms. Now, it doesn't mean that in the Christian life there isn't a struggle with sin and sometimes a struggle and fall, but even that is part of the process of growth, that you learn because you stumble, you are more aware of what's going on within you, and so that would that can often be part of the process of growth. So in verse 10, he says, Therefore, brethren, be, be more diligent to make your call and election sure. How do you do that? By living this life of prayer in which these things grow in you. For if you do these things, you will never stumble, for so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But we do stumble. <laughs> Um, I think Peter would say that if you hold on to your faith and prayer, though you are um, struggling with perhaps the conquest of certain tendencies in your life, um, this is part of the spiritual life, and it will, if you hold on to your prayer and your faith, it will eventually issue forth in fruitfulness. The main Temptation in the life of prayer is to give up. And so, um, as long as we continue on, there isn't anything, and, and, and in this discipline of, it's really a life of repentance and faith, it's a life of turning away and turning towards, um, it, it, the life in us will grow and, and it can't be defeated. So, stumbling, um, you know, a, 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 if you're running a race and the goal is to get to the end and you stumble, it doesn't mean you won't get to the end unless you stumble and fall down and then decide um, to quit. Um, yeah, decide that you're, you're um, yeah. So, I think that's, that's kind of what he means there, what is meant there. So, Peter then says in verse 12, For this very reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things. And that's the point of teaching and preaching. Is it's never really anything brand new. It's mm -hmm. reminding you. <laughs> if it's really brand new, it's probably heretical. We probably need to... Um, there are new insights into old truths, and we certainly hope some of that comes to us in, in our ministry. But um, to remind you things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right, as long as, as I'm in this tent, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to 
ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. Now, these words are really uh, biblically significant here. Um, put off my tent is my is my tabernacle, but the image he's he's playing off is that um, is the image of the the tabernacle of the Old Testament, where God sort of his presence dwelt in a tent, and the idea is that Peter's living in a body which he's viewing as a temporary tabernacle. St. Paul plays on this, I believe it's in 1 Corinthians 4, where he talks that we have this this, this earthly habitation or, or dwelling, and um, it's a temporary dwelling, but it's also, you know, prefigures the resurrection. We're not going to be disembodied spirits, but um, but that's the image here of the temporary um Dwelling and, and the, the other really important word here, <clears throat> you put off this tent, so, so to ensure you that, that you have a reminder of things after my decease. And this word decease here is the Greek word exodus, which appears in the New Testament only here and in the transfiguration account in, in I believe, Luke's gospel, where, where Moses and Elijah. Um, appear to Jesus and speak of his decease, which will come to Jerusalem. And the idea of Exodus is that the death is then, therefore, the, <clears throat> the, the beginning of the new Exodus, that Jesus, through his death, opens up to, to people who are trapped in, in death, opens up a way to life, a passageway through death to life. So Good Friday leads us from death into the life of Easter. So when Peter borrows the same word and talks about his exodus, he means his death will be a death that is a passageway into the greater life in, in Christ, following this pattern. Is clear? Any thoughts about that? Well, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed him, as he says, that's the pattern. That's a good point with that. Um, the Lord Jesus Christ showed me because it could also refer to um, <clears throat> well, where, well, where, where did the Lord Jesus Christ talk about Peter's death? In John uh, 21. What did he say? <laughs> it said... Well, first of all, Peter said, um, as Jesus, you know, reprimanded him, um, after that, he said, uh, he talked about John, he said, what about him? And, uh, well, Peter said, when you're an old, when you're old, uh, I mean, Jesus said, when you're old, you will be led to where you do not want to go. And then um, he was talking about his crucifixion, and um, Peter was crucified upside down. And so after that, he said, Peter said, well, um, what about him, talking about John? Um, and Jesus says, what is that to you? You follow me. You know, if I decide that he is to stay here, that, that's up to me. So for, for our purposes here, <laughs> Carolyn hi highlighted it um, rightly, that that. Jesus told Peter he was going to be taken where he didn't want to go, which implied a martyrdom, the other tradition. So, so when, when he says that I must put off my tent as the Lord Jesus Christ showed me, he's expecting, I mean, you could equally mean I'm expecting the fulfillment of what he prophesied, but also that I understand that that is participation in the cross and will lead me to life. I'm sorry, say that again? That is participation in what? Well, you missed the part in the beginning we talked about the word decease being exodus. So we're so you're you missed the point that we kind of let in with about Jesus, about Peter's death being an exodus, the same word used of Jesus' death in the transfiguration. Oh, okay. And so when Peter talks about um I'm gonna put off my my tent, he's then Connecting it by the word Exodus to the death of Jesus and the cross, and and implying that he understands it to be a passageway into life. 
Thank you. To verse 16. We did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice, which came from heaven, when we were with him on the holy mountain. And that is, he means there, uh, the transfiguration. Does everyone understand what, what the story of the transfiguration is about? Wasn't that that Jesus was um, seen in his glory? So, so Jesus went up, and the tradition is it's Mount Tabor in northern Israel. If you go there, there's all kinds of you know, tourist sites you can go. You probably won't see the blind glory, but um, you'll 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 see the, a lot of tourists. But there's that, that Jesus went up there with Peter, James, and John. So Peter was there, and while he was there, uh, uh, a cloud descends, and um, Peter says, well, "Let's." Let's build, you know, three dwelling places. Three tabernacles. So you can keep you here. And, 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 and so um, it was Jesus lot. says, it was, and she, you know, shut up and listen. Sorry. And, um, no, I'll say it to you. That's what, that's what God said to Peter, who was talking too much. Be quiet and listen. And, um, but it's in that same event where Moses and Elijah appeared to Jesus on the mountain with the glory and spoke of his decease or exodus. So clearly, Peter means that Jesus had this taste of glory that 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 let him know that his death was going to be a fulfillment and a passageway into life. And so here, um, Peter then. Uh, were, it says, were eyewitnesses, which we also, in a sense, saw the glory. And because we've seen the glory of God in Christ, we have the assurance now that, that, that our death in him has that same trajectory. As we're not making, we're not giving you a, 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 a it's not a, a fable, it's not, a, 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 as would be common in, in early religion, non-Christian, Gnostic religion, a vision that somebody had out somewhere that no one confirmed. This is a vision that Jesus had that Peter, James, and John witnessed and heard. And so that's what he says, where we were eyewitnesses, that's what he means there. And that, and that was also, um, so Moses and Elijah were fulfilling the law, and, and Moses was the law and Elijah was the prophet. So that was the fulfillment of the law and the prophet. Verse 19. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed. The prophecy of the Old Testament confirmed in the appearance of Jesus, of which we bear witness to you. And this testimony language, and we talked about this in our Bible studies, but the testimony language of the Bible is really significant. God is presenting the, the case to us and we're to receive the witness. You know, John, John's gospel is, is big on this witness language, but Peter clearly has it here too, um, that uh, the, the prophetic word is confirming their witnesses to it. And, and there he's delivering it now to, the, to his, his, his hearers. And we hold on to it. And um, In that sense, I think, and this is, uh, you know, to, to apply this, the whole passage, just kind of worked our way through of a life that, that we're partakers of the divine nature. We, we have this privilege in life for prayer to live in communion with God. The reality of that life is confirmed as we bear the fruit of virtue in our lives. And um, we stay in that path because this is, this is, we have, we know this is the way to life, the way to our own, as it were, exodus from, from death into life. And um, 
in the world we live in, the real danger is to get distracted from that, from that life of the kingdom, of, of partaking of divine nature into the life of the world, which draws us away from that. Or for um, Peter, as we'll, as we'll see as we get on in, in this chapter, in the chapter here, false teachers who say, you shouldn't walk the way of the cross. You, you're free to do things. And um, Peter is going to be uh, the, the sort of graphic language of chapter two will really be, because they're clearly teachers who are saying, um, you who are living this life of no to, to the world, the flesh, and the devil, and yes to Jesus, um, you know, there are some people who didn't feel themselves bound by the word and, and the boundaries of God, and they were doing what they wanted to do. And so Peter gives a whole bunch of biblical analogies as to how that didn't work out for people in the past and how that applies to us. It, in addition, addition to these two, seeing Elijah and Moses, didn't they? I mean, all 12 disciples saw Jesus, touched him, in the resurrection, yeah. Uh, the, the, he's talking here specifically, I think, what, I think because this, this section here um, is specifically meant to connect Peter's death by, by the word decease exodus in verse uh, 15 with Jesus' death, as those two words are connected by, maybe we should go and look at it so that... Um, John uh, and John. So that people know, it's it's Luke, I believe. I I, um, I think it's probably good to um, probably about Luke nine. I want to say. The cost of following Jesus is there. Walking the are you referring to the transfiguration? Yeah, 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 yeah. Luke 9, 23, 28. Luke 9, 28, if you want to turn uh, there, and I'll, I'll make the point that we just highlighted clearer. Um, it, it is um, in Luke 9, 28, I will, I will I'll read. Um, now it came to pass, after, about eight days after these sayings, that he took Peter, John, and James, went up to the mountain to pray. By tradition, as Mount Tabor in northern Israel. And he, as he prayed, the appearance of the stage was altered, and his robe became white and glistening. And behold, two men talked with him, who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease. Now, what I want to say here is this word decease in Luke 9.31, and... Um, Decease in Second Peter one fifteen. That's the only two places in the New Testament word that that particular Greek word is used, and it's Exodus. So, so when Peter is saying he is recalling a transfiguration in this passage and connecting his death, which he calls his decease or Exodus, with Jesus' death, whom Moses and Elijah let him know was the new Exodus. So that Peter's death then participates in that. That's that's the connection we're, we're making there. And then the other connection, um, which is I think is significant, um, Peter and those who were heavy with sleep, when they fully wake, they saw the glory of God and two men who stood with them. Then it happened as uh, they were parting from him, that Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles or tents. So Peter says, I'm sorry, take off my tent. And at the mountains of transfiguration, he wanted to make a tent for the divine presence. So, so there's two words that connect First Peter in this section to the transfiguration, the word exodus or decease, and the concept of the tent. And so back to First Peter, chapter one, 
um, verse 17, recalling the transfiguration, for he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son, whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. That's why there are witnesses. I mean, this is not making this stuff up. And so we have the prophetic word confirm, which you do well to heed, as a light that shines in a dark place. Until the day dawns, the morning star rises in your heart. There's a um, history of through the scriptures of this word uh, uh, day star or morning star rising in the heart um, applied to Jesus. And, and so um, it's like the dawn. We think of Easter, that you know, it's all these themes are connected. But, but in the darkness of um, of mortal life and hopelessness of this world is captivity to death. The um, morning star, the day star rises in our hearts and gives us life in the midst of death. And that's what Peter's saying to them, you're living this life because the light's in your heart. In the midst of a dying world, you have this life, you're partakers of the divine nature and as you live this life that grows in virtue, you are making sure your own way through the exodus of death into the life that is Christ. So, so pay attention to it. So, on to it. so Bishop, so the morning star is Jesus? Yes. Um, there are... Uh, I haven't got the cross references. Uh, there's one in in, this, in the Balaam story where um, uh, it, it, the prophecy of the star will rise, um, and um, the day the star of the star was that the day spring up. Come on high. Is yeah, same, that, same, kind, same, same kind of thing. thing. That's right. But the light rising. Um, and, and it gets, you know, part, part of this also is an image that, of just creation. Um, the light shines in the darkness. And so at the beginning of creation, there was the darkness on the face of the deep. And God said, let there be light. And then when John, in his gospel, um, says the light shines in the darkness and darkness would not comprehend it. He's alluding to the creation narrative because remember what he said is the beginning was the word, word was with God, word was God. And then... Word became um, flesh. Huh? Word became flesh. And, and he... Um, but the, 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 then the light of John 1 corresponds with the light of Genesis 1 because if you look at Genesis 1... There, um, the sun is created, I, I believe, on day four. The spirit hovers over the waters. But there is no light. There is no created light referred to on day one. So there's a, the light, which is Christ, predates the creation of temporal lights like sun and moon. And the shining and creation of light in the darkness is 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 the image then that comes into the New Testament even here where Jesus is the, the day star, the light that shines in the darkness of a world of sin. It's like Easter morning coming from the tomb in the darkness of sin, the new light dawns. And as he comes in our hearts, as we receive the prophetic word in the darkness of our own hearts, stuck in a world of sin and death and hopelessness, that light brings us, you know, into his life, which is new creation. So that's that's kind of the rise for that image, I think.
So the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. And that's both can be referenced to the personal experience of conversion, but it's also we're Remember, we're waiting for the for the for, for the eternal day. There was no night there. Revelation tells us, and actually, this is the idea that we live in the light always. The light and the darkness are, are same with you, because as, as the psalm says, we're always walking in the light because because of in, we're in the light who is Jesus, and and we never in this world. So we're already living in the day without darkness because we live in Christ as we're partakers of the divine nature. But we look forward to a time when um, when um, that's the Sorry. actual reality of creation, not really the, the reality we live in by faith and the gift of the Spirit. And to use your term, last week, that's... Inaugurated eschatology. I like what it says, which you do well to keep as a light that shines in a dark place, even though it hasn't fully manifested itself. We are we're working toward that. Yeah, it's, it's one of the reasons we only got to verse eight last week. We talked about eschatology <laughs> and mental, but but the, the, the true idea of of how the kingdom relates to this world is this sense of inaugurated eschatology. The kingdom is really here but not completely here. And the errors are to think it is, is completely here and it's just up to us to make the world a better place or it's completely future. There's no current participation meaningfully in it. And that tends to be in the more salvationist brand of Christianity. We have a, you, know, you have the, the, the insurance policy, but there's not really the idea of living in the life of, of, of Christ in the spirit. So, we have this prophetic word, uh, we heed it as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing first that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but the holy man of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And this is why when somebody has, like, an insight into scripture, if only they have it, everybody else in the church always thought it meant something else. It's a good warning sign, but like, no, not that. Um, and even the transfiguration witness that, that Peter's talking about was a witness of three guys. By the, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word will be confirmed. It's very biblical, and and and, and so it is confirmed that way. That 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 testimonial language, those central scriptures, applies there, as opposed to other teachers who say, "Well, I don't, you know, I think this about this passage, or I I had a vision." It's like, really? Okay. <laughs> but the two preeminent, for example. Um, Gnostic religions of our day are rooted in unconfirmed witness. That would be Mormonism and Islam. That, that they took one guy saw things that nobody else saw. And that's what makes it Gnostic as opposed to the church in the church, where there's yeah, three on the mountain, twelve, you know, eleven the resurrection, one guy checked out. Uh, and they had another guy who, who Judas. Matthias. We had that feast a week or two ago, St. Matthias. So this is this is why tradition in its best sense as the authoritative understanding of scripture and and God as the church has always perceived it, um, we hold on to that. That's the authentic witness. And the more we you know, even even though um you know this is something to say, even though in um you know, there's some debate about tradition. Uh, you know, we 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 see we see the, the tradition as being what the ancient first millennium church in its unified seven ecumenical councils agreed to. The Roman Catholic Church sees it as twenty-two councils going up to Vatican II. However, despite the fact we could say, well, they believe this, believe this, at the root of both of those is essentially the same thing. 
who Jesus is, what he did, how we live in it. So there's, despite the fact that there are not insignificant debates between between different traditions about the exact content of the tradition, in terms of the substance of, yeah, put your faith in Jesus, we have to be faithful to the commandments, we're supposed to live fruitful lives, that's not in debate. And a lot of times people want to get these arguments because they want to avoid the reality of how you live the life. <laughs> and, and those people want, oh, we believe that, what do you believe? So why don't you enter in where you are and live the life according to that, what they're telling you. Like people go, I don't want to be angry, I don't want to be orthodox. Okay, well, go decide where you're going to be and jump in and be there. That's why Kate, during the part, in that part where we say, I believe in one holy Catholic yeah. and apostolic church, she emphasizes that up in, <laughs> up in the choir lot. Yeah. One. So, so it's, it's, it's uh, but that's because we, we, a lot of times the arguments we have about differences, which, which are really honestly comparatively minor in the overall scheme, um, people do that because they don't want to have to deal with their own life. That's why we argue about religion, so I have to face myself. On top of this on Sunday, the Pharisees don't want to face themselves. So they're like, oh, you did this by the devil. You didn't, like, they don't want to look like, oh, what's going on with me? I'm, I'm here opposing the Messiah. <laughs> so. <clears throat> but holy man of God spoke to them by the Holy Spirit. So then we jump into chapter two, which was the assignment today. So that was that's the true witness um, received by the apostles and Peter passed on to them, which is the day star that rises in the heart. But in chapter two it says there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. And this is teaching of Jesus, right? Beware of false prophets that come to you in sheep's clothing. So they look like sheep. They're among you, but they're not sheep. They're wolves. And how do you know them? Fruits. By their fruits. What did Peter just said? How do you know authentic faith? By its fruit. Is it producing virtue? And, and the things in the community that you want. How do you know a false prophet? Wherever they are, they just seem to, what is that, argument or contention, or it doesn't seem to uh, promote the increase of faith, hope, and love. It doesn't seem to, so, um, <laughs> they promote the increase of their curse, of the curse, yeah. Emotion and, and many will follow their destructive ways. And so this is something that's always a grievance in the church because uh, it's of the dynamic of the gospel that as you call people to live in it, some will decide they don't want to. And some will, will drift off into things that are, are um, unfaithful. And You know, I, I had a it's personally happened to me. I mean, <clears throat> and I know God was the moving party, but when Bishop Force at St. Michael's and All Angels said, you don't have to believe in Trinity to be a Christian. Ooh. And I that was, thought, it wasn't, you said Bishop Morris, he didn't say that. The Bishop Force. Bishop Morse, okay, yeah, Morse. And, and I, I also, already was not real happy with that church, but um, so I knew I had to go somewhere. I don't know where. And Elizabeth Parr, remember her? Oh, yeah. yeah. She, uh, she told me about being over on 16th Street. So I went to Father Scarlett and um, I thought, yeah, this, this is more the place I need to be. And I know God was behind that. I mean, of course. And I remember Bishop Borch, I think he's passed away now as an old bishop. But I remember we used to, I used to, in the early stages, we talked more about the Episcopal Church. I remember saying something. So I, I didn't really go read what he said, because I think I found just 
So I went and read what he said, and he was every bit as bad. As I, I mean, it was just, it's just denial. It's just, they don't, they, they, well, it was, this is something that came up. The first, the, I, I, we're not going to get a whole bunch of this, but um, the first, the, the arch heretic of the Episcopal Church, you kind of opened the door for any doctrine to be okay, was Bishop Pike, yeah. Yeah. Bishop of Northern California, who preached that, the only difference between a Muslim and a Christian was that a, a Muslim could have one God and three wives, and a Christian could have three gods and one wife. Wow. And he'd say things like that. And then what, 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 but what was significant, not that he said it, what was significant to the Episcopal Church is um, they were unable to discipline him for it. So he was, it was actually a trial for heresy. But it, 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 no conviction was brought, and it established in the Episcopal Church not that you couldn't believe what was true, but that it wasn't going to be required that you wow. believe what was true. And that's what opened the door to all the subsequent things. And it's, it's really the problem, um, you know, when you think about the Episcopal Church, is that the problem is not um, that you, that there aren't Christians in it who are believing and and carrying on is that it's optional. And that was that was the real change between we talked about the 1920 Book of Common Prayer, which is is um, in a way symbolic. Almost no one uses it exactly as it is in our movement. There are things they use, but it's it's the prayer book tradition and what it is, it symbolizes there's a common prayer we all say amen to and a common faith. What happened in the in the 1979 prayer book, which was brand new in the in the in the Anglican tradition, was you, all of a sudden you had multiple liturgies. So you could have quite apart from like I wanted to be clear about this. Like we prefer more or less languages more beautiful and poetic to languages banal and and drab. But that wasn't the issue. If it was mere translation, there wouldn't have been any uh, uh, split. It was that. You, there was like this right for you who really believe in it still, but then for you who want a little distance from the cross, oh, you could actually for for Sunday Eucharist have about with with the different options about sixteen different ways to celebrate prayer of consecration, prayer for the church, emphasis, what you wanted to do, and so what it created was the reality of of not common prayer but diverse prayer, because common prayer is not just that. We were together saying this in common, but we as a church all say amen to the same thing. And that's that's what was lost in 79. And so it's not that everyone who's Episcopalian is horrible and going to hell. It's that the dynamic of the church is, is diverse. You don't have to believe this. They want to be inclusive. Inclusive. Well, that was the thing. It was drawing the circle bigger. Whereas the, the reality of faith is, is it, it is... It is exclusive on the level of you have to, you know, it requires that you believe in Jesus and be the story of understood. It requires that you um, follow his teachings and do things he said. And if you don't want to do that, we don't, you know, it doesn't mean we're, and yet we can't be in the thing, you know, and that's, that's the boundary of church discipline as well. God, you know, I'm sorry that you don't want to do this, but you have to be there now. You can't be here. That's the St. Paul, for example, said in morning prayer the other morning when he said about the man who, who married his father's wife, not his mother, but probably a, he said, you know, remove him from the church. But hopefully this will lead him to repentance so he can come back. But there's a boundary. You don't, you don't get to do whatever you want to do in, in the body of Christ. You, there's a boundary to it. So. I read that as his mother. Hmm? I read that as I thought. I don't think that's well, you don't think it was his mother. Okay, I, don't think that means I never thought of it. All cultures found that. I mean, that that would be a, mm -hmm. a for everybody a bridge too far. I think. In the vernacular, maybe you should read this. Yo, mama. <laughs> well, you, you probably think of something like this: that maybe he has a father who married a younger woman who somebody got separated in the son. So you, you just you know, okay, and, and and but but Leviticus was very clear. Was they all saying, don't do that. Because the minute you, you know, eh, well, we don't need that. <laughs> so, many will follow their destructive ways. Many will follow. Many will go away from the true faith to follow the destructive ways of, of teachers who, who um, promise things but aren't rooted in the truth.
because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. Our culture, you know, if you really believe this and really practice it, well, you can't be stupid. You're keeping you from happiness or fulfillment. You're, you're, you're narrow. You, you want people to be miserable. All those kinds of things that are implied with if you really take this seriously. By covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words because they want you and, and your money, as, as, uh, as Jack highlighted. For a long time, their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. Now, what's going to happen here in this ensuing section is just a series of examples from the scriptures that show what happens when people abandon the faith, when people don't do what God says to do. What happens? That's, and this is, the, this is the, the idea of the narrative we're living in. We're living in the narrative of the New Testament in which we are in Christ, partakers of the divine nature, as Peter says, living in that relationship of communion, working on producing virtue, adding faith and self-control and love. That's our narrative. Um, there's a different narrative for those who reject that. And that narrative is picked up here by Peter in, in, um, in this section. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell, which is literally the Greek Tartarus, which I think has a correspondence with Hades. Or, but the idea is, we talked about this. This is, um, we talked about this. These are the Angels of Genesis 5, where it says the sons of God saw the daughters of women that they were fair, and they took the ones they wanted. He is referring to the tradition that comes from the book of Enoch, that is quoted in Jude also, um, which does not mean that Enoch is scripture. What it means is that the particular thing that Enoch is talking about is true, because he has embraced it. But... That, that, that therefore, when he's, they didn't keep their proper boundary. And let's remember this about morality. Morality is appropriate boundary to life, which protects everybody, everybody else and ourselves. Angels are angels, humans are humans. You don't cross that boundary, but they did. And so they're chained. There was, interestingly... Um, there was a popular movie this Christmas, right? I think it had Will Ferrell in it about it. It was supposed to be a replay of the Christmas story. Um, well, that's the funny one about don't shoot your eye out. <laughs> it, the, the one was about, it's called the, I think it was, I think it was supposed to be a, a play on that, but they had the angels showing up. But in that story, a female angel has a relationship with a human. I said, oh, this is okay, well... Oops, it's like, no, it doesn't really work. It, it's, it doesn't really work like that. And people, oh, isn't this cute? Because I, I think this is the problem that, that even sometimes people have. They have this confusion that, oh, you die, you become an angel. You're not ever going to be an angel. You're a human. Are, are there female angels? We're not given that. It, doesn't, it seems how sometimes, somehow they're beyond gender in some way, but they tend to have male. These names we can think of as male, Michael, Gabriel. Uh, there's seven traditional archangels that we have names of. And then, uh, so, I, but I want to be careful about the, these, these sort of gender questions that we don't know what we don't know, but there's no indication that they're, that they're feminine in, in, in any. Yes. But they can appear. Angels can appear in a gender. Can't they? I mean, when an angel is there to help you in what looks like a physical body, they can appear in a gender. Well, the, I, you know, again, I just caution us to to stick with what we know on these things. Um, I suppose the the three men. Uh, two of whom were angels that appeared to Abraham, you know, appeared and looked like they were, mm. they were, um, yeah. so there was that, but they were men. So in all the places they appear, mm. if there's a gender, it appears to be a male gender. Mm. 
I am not aware of anywhere in the scriptures that it says that the angel appears as a as a as, as a feminine. Yeah, most of my perception is they're asexual, except they present themselves by creation as a reflection of the Father, because he said they refer to him as the sons of God, right? Yeah, and I think the other the other issue about this that comes up, and the reason it's probably not defendable. I remember I was, but we went to the glory of Christmas, the Christmas theater one year, and all the all the Asians were, were, were women, which I get this is like yeah. this whole gender confusion on this. But I, I think part of the image here is that um, the essential feminine is the church, Eve, Mary, church, and that's the feminine other to whom the Son of God is going to be married. Is betrothed and will be married. So I think in the angelic realm, they would be more like attendants of of the uh, the bridegroom or you know something like that. So they seem to appear more in the heavenly court. I think that that accounts for the the masculine imagery of God in the heavenly court is that the feminine is the church. That was being brought into into the Godhead through the through the whole redemptive mystery, and it's why I think this. Um, Though, though we have to just be really cautious about what we know and don't know, is why the gender confusion is very significant, and is why the the mystery of the church is 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 the mystery of the bridegroom Christ being joined with the bride, the church, and this is this is why the confusion of gender always messes that up, um, and it, it is why we have a male apostolic ministry because is Christ is a bridegroom. And in that, and there's a representative function of that in the liturgy of the church that that um, that is an icon of an essential aspect of the mystery. And to suggest that that icon of the bridegroom can be feminine is to say that gender is interchangeable, which which is really the the, the essential root of homosexuality. It's interchangeable. And, and it's not a surprise if you look at it historically, these two things rose in church at the very same time, mid-20th century, and that the early proponents of women's ordination were very clear. They were radical feminists. They were saying, we need a feminine face for God. Now, that filtered the church is well, it's just about equality, and it's about, it's about that kind of thing. And um, so the other thing, well, I won't get too sidetracked in this, but I will make a, a corollary point. Um, that that every member of the body of Christ, male and female, has valuable gifts and ought to be valued and contributed, as we see, like in the New Testament. Sometimes in our churches, due to a sort of um, perversion of patriarchy, some of the some of the gifts of women are are ignored or 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 not valued or cultivated, right. and so part of the movement towards women's ordination was well, I want to be you know, I, uh, and that becomes a cultural battle. But the answer to that is not to to become heretical. It is to it is to return to a valuing of 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 the gifts of every member of the body, and and to uh, encourage the use of those gifts in in right ways. It looks like a structural layout from the male, from the structure and the building and floor and the heavy work. And he gives the female, the church, the bride, and he also refers to wisdom as female. Probably yeah, I hear that a lot. Yeah, or I read that. So let's. Well, anyway, just I wanted to make so. So coming back to the idea of of um, boundary here, that um, that um, the angels who sinned transgressed the boundary, and now they're chained, reserved to judgment. So. The implication: those in, those who who listen to the false prophets go outside the boundary of God's revelation and will will follow in the pattern of those angels. That's the idea. And God did not spare the ancient world. Verse five, 
but save Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. So, the image here again prevails of Noah representing righteousness, but, but everyone else practicing licentiousness. It's sort of presented in the scriptures as the angels who came down and broke their boundary initiate a kind of epidemic of boundary, of, 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 of open boundarylessness. They ever do whatever they want, and God, that's what God looks down and says, gosh. Sorry, oops, I sorry, did this. Um, and so comes the flood, and he calls Noah to build an ark, and so Noah builds a boat, and everyone in the boat is saved. He's making the analogy here, so you who receive the witness from us, and are become partakers of the divine nature and continue in this faith and, and, and bear fruit, you are the ark. This is, this is the community of the body. Christ is the ark in which salvation is. And if you go outside of that, when the flood comes, it's not going to be safe out there. That's the analogy he's drawing here. And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemn them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward live ungodly. That's the story of Lot, um, who chose the fertile fields of the valley and ended up in the midst of unrighteous behavior. Uh, in that story, it's, a, it's an illustration. I remember the story. So the story in Genesis is that Abraham and his nephew Lot are living together, both are becoming wealthy. So there's dispute among their hired hands over property, and they say, well, let's separate. And Abraham says to Lot, if you want to go that way, I'll go this way. If you want to go this way, I'll go that way. Which way do you want to go? And Lot looks towards the plain of Sodom and Gomorrah and says, look, feel, look fertile, and, and so I'll go that way. So he goes that way. And then later on, he finds that uh, God is the Sodom and Gomorrah that has been reported to the divine court as being very wicked. And men come down to Abraham and say, We're going to take a look at that. And he's like, Well, my nephew's there. And, and, and Abraham intercedes for Lot that he says he won't, he says he won't destroy it um, if um, he finds 10 people. But the last count was less than that. Five? Uh, well, it was it was Lot, his wife, his daughters, so four, and then of course his wife turned. I can't remember if the sons-in-laws came or stayed, but they must they stayed behind, yeah, because they because that's the whole. It's a problematic incestuous story about the right. origins of Moab and Ammon, but but um, it was just Lot and his daughters, right? Yeah, so 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 that there's there's that destruction they run for their life. But these are the analogies of. And I think one of the things we, we have to remember is it's 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 um, when judgment does not seem at hand. What are you making such a big deal about? Mm. But when judgment comes, you go, "Oh gosh, I wish I'd listened." Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so this is kind of the the these extreme examples are ways of him. Highlighting this, this is historically in all the scriptural revelation where someone receives the revelation and departs from it into evil. This is the continuous record of what happens. Turning <clears throat> the city of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned to destruction, making an example of those who afterward live ungodly. And delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Um, the scriptures don't really say that, so we're, we're dealing with tradition <laughs> regarding that. And then the whole subsequent behavior with Lot. Yeah. It's like, hmm, okay, yeah. righteous lot. Right. Yeah, I know. Um, that uh, but it, it, it seems as though that, that the favor expressed towards Lot is due to his relationship to Abraham, mm -hmm. which exceeds for him. So he's connected to that. And um, the mercy of God is to tell him to get out of town. Yeah. And he 
he does for his daughters. So if the Lord can deliver Lot from that, then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. So as we live our life of prayer, we counter various things, we hold on to Christ, we will find the grace to avoid temptation and judgment. Uh, we'll find the wisdom we need. Um, Sometimes it takes a long time. <laughs> Carol, amen. Yeah. <laughs> now, note here where he says in verse 10, especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. Now, the lust, again, is desire here, the desire of the flesh, which is not um, solely oriented towards sexual desire, but it is the, um, the, un, um, the disordered desire of human nature that wants things outside of the will of God. And, and part, we should understand, I think it's important to, to really have a, a good grasp on what we believe about this, that that we don't believe that desire, human desire, is intrinsically a bad thing. Um, we think that because of sin, it's disordered, and we tend to want things that God has said don't do, but God has said don't do them because they're not good for us. They won't really give us what they say they'll give us. So the idea of the Christian life of of the idea of, of, of bearing the cross, of, of saying no to disordered desire, and that's part of the Lenten idea of fasting, we practice saying no, is, is to reorder our desire towards Christ, and then to enjoying the things in Christ that he gives us, which actually are fulfilling, and actually provide a lasting kind of peace. So it's the, the idea that, that um, Wanting things is bad is not a Christian thing, but 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 it, our our framework of faith is very much um, oriented around the idea that um, we're disciplining our desire to turn it back towards God. And we, if we look as a premium example, of this it would be the story of the fall of man in Genesis three, where where. Um, so there's a desire there uh, in, amongst a few first humans, you know, to, to be like God, to, to grow and be, be children of God. But there's an offer of a fruit. Oh, see, it's desire would make me wise. And that's the disordered desire then goes to the prohibited thing. And what, what is the result? They end up, you know, knowing they're naked, ashamed, afraid, hiding from God in the bushes. So it was a lie. And so the idea of saying no, God says no, is because it's really like a not yet. Everything that was promised by the serpent, that you'd be like God, doing good and evil, is God's will for us. But we're, we're infants, we're not ready yet. It's like taking your child and exposing them to all manner of things that are just not ready for yet. So the trust is, we, we trust that God will fulfill those things in this good time. So it also speaks to how Genesis 3, or you can infer out of that, that that the desire of the tree of knowledge of good and evil was was very desirous. <coughs> and, and it was good, and they could see, Adam and Eve could see it was good, but they weren't tempted to pick up its fruit because God had told them, do not go there. Until the devil came along. Until the devil came along. So, but they desired. I could foresee that they desired it, even though they they chose not to partake in the fruit of that. Is that yeah? Right? But it was it was not a gift, so it was not to be desired to be. It was, oh, it was yeah. to be denied. Yes, the tree right. of life was to be desired. Yeah. I want to finish this section, so I want to yeah. break where my section heading is. <laughs> the other thing that lust and despise authority. This is something very important, despise authority. A lot of times, you know, um, and whether that be governmental authority or church authority, 
it's just that the, the refusal to be subject to rightly ordered structures is a sign of rebellion. Mm-hmm. It goes back to the very beginning where the Lucifer, the glorious angel, didn't want to be subject to someone greater. Mm-hmm. So our submission to authority is a sign of, 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 of um, authentic faith. And that is, that's why St. Paul says obey the government, that's why you're supposed to be subject to you know, the authority of the church. It's not an autocratic, whatever bishop or a priest says, but there's a legitimate ordering of the life, holding on to the faith, of, and we should be looking. And, and, and part of our commitment to Christ is giving up our own fight and be willing sometimes just to yield to the common good and, and, and the order of things. So so the rebellion against authority is a sign of, of um, it's an evil inclination for its own sake. Now, of course, there is the ability to, you know, uh, if, if authority is doing something that's really outside the bounds of, of what they're supposed to do, there are legitimate ways to address it even being subject to the idea of authority by we, we protest in righteous ways. So that would be disordered desires, truly, for those that rebel. So I'll, just, I'll finish this sentence up, and then we'll stop there and pick up next week. They are presumptuous, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries, whereas angels who are greater in power might not bring a reviling accusation against them. So all those kinds of presumptuous self-willed, it, it's it's um, the idea of submission, of being willing to bring yourself under the rule of Christ, which requires that we, we, we submit to various things around us, is a, is a mark of faith. We pick more up on that. And we're at verse, chapter 2, verse 12. So we can right, that. write it right. down. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. All right, let's pray. Lord, bless us and keep us. The Lord make his face to shine upon us, be gracious unto us. The Lord lift up his countenance upon us, give us peace this day and forever. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Bishop. Jim, Phyllis, Mimi, Ed. Peace. Apologies for being away. It's good to be here. Yeah. We're still recording here, so I want to make sure we